Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as is great to bring to church in 2024, or an app on your device, I'd like you to find with me the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus. And when you find the book of Exodus, I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 12. And I want to begin preaching this year in 2024, my first sermon with you this year in chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to begin preaching in just a few moments through verse 33, down through the end of verse 42. Exodus 12, 33 through 42. We're 14 days into the new year. How are the resolutions going? Is there any moaning, weeping, gnashing of teeth? So, People like you, and I know people like you because I'm like you and I've been with you for a long time, tend to drop their resolutions in four buckets. One bucket is spiritual. I'm going to join a small group on GroupLink. Some of you can make that resolution a reality in just a few moments at the conclusion of the service. I'm going to get more involved in church. I'm going to find a ministry to serve in. We're going to join the church this morning at the conclusion of our early service. I had at least half a dozen couples say, hey, we want to start the membership process, and that brings me great joy. So there are those spiritual steps around your church. The second bucket may be family. Hey, we're going to revisit that date night. You and I are going to go out once a week, or I'm going to spend more individual time with each of my children. It only takes about 14 days to figure out you really aren't interested in that, but (laughs) I'm going to do that. And then there is the other two buckets, which have to do with our health. And those two buckets fall in two categories. One is I'm going to do more with my body. I'm going to work out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more fit. I'm going to download that app that had a cartoon character of the dude my age, and he looked like a gorilla with muscles. And, 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 and for three minutes a day, if I do everything the app says, that's what I'm going to look like. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is not going to happen. But I'm going to do it. And then the other one is not what you do with your body, but what you put in your body. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to eat cleaner. That's kind of where I am and started that January 2nd, I just came back last night from a few days of duck hunting. You don't know how hard it is to avoid carbohydrates at a duck camp. There are hostess cakes and oatmeal cream pies and and yeast rolls and Texas toast and cold Coca-Cola. See, somebody cold what? Cold Coca-Colas. And I remember thinking, I've got to stay strong. And I was driving through to come back to be with you this morning and to begin my year. And I stopped off in Birmingham last night to pick up one of my children who was with her, uh, Laurel's parents. And I walked in the door having conquered duck camp. I did not eat a carbohydrate at duck camp. And my mother-in-law had a huge pan of her cornbread that she makes in a cast iron skillet, which is the way you should cook cornbread. If you have instant cornbread in your house, you need to banish that stuff. That's of the devil. But, and she said, she sliced a piece that, that looked about four inches tall. And she said, would you like a piece of cornbread? And the answer is always yes. I mean, of course, yes. But I said, no. I said, no. I'm going to be skinny for Laurel. <laughs> Here's the truth. We make all kinds of promises. And this is what we know about promises. 
promises that are kept always cause us to prosper. But when promises are broken, it always equates to pain. If you think about it in your life, if, if I could be very candid with you, you've been on both sides of this. You've been the recipient of a promise that was kept. Maybe you're here today and you have the privilege of being married to someone who stayed with you during a difficult time when it was just hard to keep their vow, but they buried up into the promises of God and they went through the storm with you. And when you look at them, you don't even have the words to articulate what it meant for them to keep the promise they made God. Others of you may have an opposite situation where you know there was someone in your life that didn't keep a promise they made. You may look like an adult now with it all together, but when you were a child, a parent walked out, and it hurt, and the scars run deep. Some of you may have been that spouse who wanted very badly to keep that vow, and yet your spouse looked at you and said, I don't love you anymore. I want out. If you live long enough, you're going to have a promise broken that breaks your heart, and if we're going to be honest, you're going to break a promise that you made, which breaks someone else's heart. And when we come to this idea of promise, it's not just on a personal level. Tomorrow, we will celebrate the great struggle our nation went through in and around the subject of civil rights, which carries the name of the most significant historical leader of that struggle, Dr. Martin Luther King, a preacher of God's Word himself. And his most famous speech is, of course, I have a dream. But you know he used the word promise in that speech, the text of that speech, which is a beautiful masterpiece of oratory leadership, says this. Dr. King stood there at the Lincoln Monument and said, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Dr. King would go on to say in that very same speech, this note was a promise that all men, yes, black men, as well as white men, would be guaranteed what? The inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then turning the crowd on this word promise, he says, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. So Dr. King grabbed this idea of the Constitution making a promise to every person under the umbrella of the control of the United States of America and how that promise had not been kept to his people. We know that government's don't keep promises. Presidents don't keep promises. Sometimes daddies and mamas don't keep promises. In terribly sad situations, husbands and wives don't keep promises. But by the authority of the Word of God, I'm here to tell you as we began this year, God always keeps His promises. Always. And so I'd like the privilege of preaching to you a message simply called promise kept. At the conclusion of the service, I'm going to ask you to reflect on all of the promises God has kept 
in your life. I give you that little cognitive teaser so you can begin to prepare your mind to go there. Speaking of there, where are we? Well, we're in the book of Exodus. We began it way back in August. We took a few breaks along the way to celebrate Christmas, to recast the vision of our church during more than ever. But if you were with me as we began this series, you know this, of course, is a pattern. And because there's so many guests with us today, I would tell you this is what we do. We take books of the Bible and we walk through them chapter by chapter and verse by verse because we believe no man, including the pastor of the church, has the authority to tell you how to live your life. It is the authority of God's Word, and God's Word is most faithfully preached when it is preached systematically so that we can milk it for all of its worth. And we began in the book of Exodus chapter 1 with a series simply called God Sent a Man. And it is the story of baby Moses being saved by the provision of God and then finding himself exiled as a nomad, a shepherd, a nobody. And God calls him back to do something miraculous. And so he goes back. And in going back, he finds himself there in the land of Egypt again. And I told you when we started this journey, why study Exodus? Pastor, what does Exodus have to do with my life? I gave you five reasons. They're worth revisiting very quickly. We are them. We study the story of the people of God because if you came this morning with faith in Christ, you are a part of the people of God. And therefore, watching and learning the struggles of the people of God is like holding a mirror to yourself where you can learn and grow. We also live in their world. Antiquity may look different, but it's not. The world is still broken. Sin still rules and reigns during this season of God's history and his sovereign plan. But God's still good. And he still keeps his promises. And though we may be separated by civilization and language and modernity versus antiquity, the reality is that you and I are no different than these people. We also serve their God. In the midst of so many changes and challenges from the days of Pharaoh to the day we know as now, God has not changed. And therefore, the story of his people is our scripture it is the authority to speak into our lives because guess who else is involved in this exodus? Who saves the people from Egypt? It is surely not Moses. It is none other than the Lord God who manifests himself on this earth as the Christ, which is why when Paul, the New Testament apostle, the guy in the back of your Bible wrote to the Corinthian believers, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the exodus. And all were baptized into Moses. They followed Moses just like we're to follow Jesus in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Paul would go on to write these words. And all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. We just got through celebrating Christmas. When Jesus was born, that's when he was named Jesus. In fact, the angel told Mary and Joseph, when you have him, name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But it wasn't like he had not existed. It was just the moment he took on flesh. Before he was born, he is, of course, the second person of a triune God. God has revealed himself in three persons, 
Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son, the Christ. He is the working and moving God in and among us, which is why Paul goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. So we study Exodus to learn of the faithfulness of Christ and to make sure we obey the Lord in the ways we see people being righteous and we avoid disobeying the Lord in the ways that we see people fail. The not widely known Apostle Jude wrote these words at the end of your New Testament in five. There are no chapters in Jude, so it's just Jude, verse five. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. So, Jude doesn't mince words. It's Christ working in Exodus to bring the people out to fulfill the plan that we just celebrated in the cross through song. And then when Moses delivers this news to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm supposed to lead the people out. Pharaoh says, I don't know you and I don't know your God. And no, in fact, hard no, I'm not letting you go. No, bro. And so what does God do? He brings 10 plagues to break the back of Pharaoh's resistance. And we just got through with that series called Plague by Pride. And it ends when Pharaoh wakes up after the 10th plague and the firstborn of every family is now a corpse in every home. And he says to Moses and Aaron, up, go out from among my people. In fact, Pharaoh's the one who named this series. Get out. You ever been the recipient of those instructions? It happened occasionally to me in middle school and high school. Get out. Go to the principal's office. Get out. I've been thrown out of kitchens and classrooms for various reasons. Some of you have been thrown out of other institutions. That's why you're here this morning. We praise God for his grace in your life. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. And at the drop of a hat, at the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, in a flash, everything God said that would come true came true. Two words, promise kept. And I want to read to you that moment in the Scriptures, beginning in Exodus chapter 12, beginning verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, I'm in verse 35, jewelry and for clothing, verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. In studying this promise kept, I think there are three facets of it I would point out briefly first is just the culmination of God's promise. 
this started at a burning bush. You don't think of Exodus without thinking of Moses. You don't think of Moses without thinking of the burning bush. And remember the burning bush? What did God say to Moses? Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now remember who he's speaking to, and remember the language he uses. Words matter so much. We see that in our day and age as words are attempted to be redefined, which causes people to have baseless lies, substituting for the foundation of God's Word in their life. He says, I have heard, and I'm going to deliver my people. And he's saying this to a nomadic shepherd who's still working for his father-in-law at 80. You know, if you're living in your parents' basement at 80, you didn't do real well. He's still working for his father-in-law at 80 years old. He's a nomadic shepherd. And listen, his life has been threatened not once, but twice in Egypt. The Pharaoh of his birth tried to kill him and every other Jewish boy. And then the Pharaoh at 40 years old in Moses' life tried to kill him because Moses, in an enraged passion, tried to avenge the mistreatment of his people, but he did so prematurely off of God's timetable. He took the life of a wicked Egyptian who was punishing and beating mercilessly a Hebrew. And when that was found out, Moses fled and ran into the wilderness. Fast forward 40 years, and he's 80 years old, has not been in Egypt in 40 years years, and yet God says, I'm going to deliver my people. There's something else here about this promise. Don't miss. God did not say, Moses, you're going to deliver my people. Listen to me. It's important that our faith is in the promises of God and not the promises people make in the name of God. People make all kinds of promises in the name of God. If you've ever experienced a divorce, perhaps one you didn't want, and you were of the Christian faith when you married, somebody made a promise in a ceremony and did not keep that vow. If you've ever experienced, as I said earlier, that pain of abandonment by a mother or a father, they may not have physically abused you. They just went M-I-A. And there was a point in their young adult lives where they wanted or said they would raise you to the Lord. They may have even dedicated you at a church or christened you in another denomination. And yet, spiritually, emotionally, financially, and maybe even physically, they were an absentee parent they broke a promise they made in the presence of God. Now, by God's grace, God loves promise breakers because if the only people that made heaven were those who never broke a promise, heaven would be an empty place. Not, not one of us is capable of saying we have lived up to every commitment we have made. It doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to, and it doesn't mean we don't always choose obedience to God's Word, even above our own emotional state. One of the most liberating things you can do to anybody struggling to keep a commitment is to remind them you don't have to trust your heart. That is not the message of the world, but it is the message of the Bible. You don't trust your heart. 
The future hope that you need is not in you. You trust the Word of God. You obey God and you trust Him. And then in walking out that obedience and faith, He will then heal and do in your heart what you so desire for Him to do. God said to Moses, Moses, I'm making a promise that I will deliver them. And imagine how massive this promise is. This isn't sneaking four people out at night. This is delivering the entire nation of Israel, which may have numbered in the millions, but definitely numbered in the thousands, and could have numbered in the hundreds of thousands, from an ancient dynasty that we know existed, people study Egyptology all the time, had a massive amounts of wealth and architectural accomplishments, lead them out against the will of a dynasty with a fully armed army under the leadership of a Pharaoh who was not only revered by his people, he was to be worshipped by his people. He wasn't just an autocrat or a dictator or some ruling king. He was seen as a God to be worshipped and adored. And God says, I'm going to lead them out. And then watch what happens. Look in your passage. The Bible says in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. What has happened? I think this is important. This isn't two weeks after the 10th plague. This is when the sun's coming up after the death angel passed over Egypt. The stench of death is filling Egypt. And the Egyptians have been broken of their resistance. And they basically said, your God has won. Every plague was not just an assault on the stubbornness of Pharaoh. It was an assault on a false God of Egypt. I showed you that in the previous series. And so at every turn, God had proved himself to be faithful and powerful. And the people of Egypt said, we're eat up with fear. Leave or there won't be anything left of us. But in a fascinating turn, they not only have fear of God, they have favor for the people of Israel. Look what the Bible says happens beginning in verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians, man, there's so much here. Fear of God and favor over Israel is what any person who knows the God of heaven will feel. Now drop that in your modern day application. There's a lot of debate. But if you love the Lord Jesus and you love his word, you fear God and you favor Israel. You fear God and you favor Israel. You don't favor the geopolitical struggle of a government like any other government that can make mistakes. But you recognize that people of the book, which is what I hope you are, always know that our God has a special place in his heart 
for the Jewish people. And therefore, we should have a special place in our heart for the Jewish people. This is why evangelical Christians have lined up for generations behind a love and support of Israel. It's not writing Israel a blank check to do what they want. It's not in any way suggesting that Israel is a perfect nation. And it is not in any way opening the door that somehow Jewish people go to heaven in a different way than Christian people. Christian people, Jewish people, Buddhist people, people of the Islamic faith, anybody. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through the blood of Jesus. There's only one way that we can be saved. So every American in heaven, every Jew in heaven, every African in heaven, every European in heaven is in heaven because at some point they recognized their sinfulness and turned their life over to Christ and trusted the shed blood and the finished work of his cross and the victorious event of his resurrection. That is what Jesus said. It is unequivocally undeniable. It's above and beyond any debate. But... People who love the God of the Bible, who love Yahweh, who believe in Jehovah, who understand who God is, understand he is not done with Israel. He loves his people, and he loves that land. That's where he will return. Jesus at the second coming will descend into Israel. Little teaser. I'm praying right now, 2025, we may walk through the book of Revelation. It's going to take us about 12 years, so get ready. Some of you will pray that it happens before we finish. You'll be so sorry. But I'm working through the beginning phases of planning, preaching through the book of Revelation. And when I do, you and I will see how significant Israel is. And yet way back here in the Exodus, when God manifests a deliverance of his people, what do the Egyptians walk away with? They fear the greatness and the might of God. And they look upon his people, this nomadic group of enslaved nobodies, and they have favor for them. And so the Jews say, well, we need gold and we need silver. And by the way, are they being selfish? They're not being selfish. I don't know how many people are in this room. I'm the pastor, so I'd say 10 to 15,000. <laughs> but what if, what if... The 15, 1,800 people that are sitting in this room right now, there are about 2,200 seats. There's some open seats. We'll call it 15 to 1,800, maybe 1,900. But what if, what if all of us immediately right now, under perhaps my command or the command of someone else, said, we got to go. We got to leave right now. You got one hour to be back at the campus, and we're all migrating. Where are we going? I don't know. Pick a state. We'll go to Iowa. Just the first one that popped in. I ain't going to California. We'll go to Iowa. Iowa's kind of important right now. We'll go there. Can you imagine just the logistics of that? I mean, just moving a few hundred people inside of a sovereign nation with an interstate system. And guess what else? In this room, there's certainly a varying degrees of wealth. Some of you are incredibly financially wealthy. Others of you work and you make ends meet and you live paycheck to paycheck. And some of you are young and you're students and, and you're broke. Others of you are on a fixed retired income. But none of you are slaves. All of you have the clothes on your back. You have more clothes in your closet. You own way more pairs of shoes than you brought with you to church. You have access to a vehicle. If you don't own a vehicle, your parent does, your friend does, your spouse does. And so all of you have a measure of provision. And all of you have read the statistics that say Americans are of the wealthiest of people that have ever lived 
One of the ones that always sticks out in my mind is that if you own more than two pairs of shoes or you ever have a mortgage, I don't mean you ever pay it off. If you have a mortgage, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people who've ever lived in the history of humanity. In the history of humanity, much of the world today will not own more than one or two pairs of shoes and will eat a bowl of rice for their sustenance. And so we have provision. So while it would be difficult and challenging, the truth is, if we needed to, all 1,800 of us could get up and go to Iowa. We could. Now imagine moving tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of slaves with no provision. So what does God do? He says, Moses, tell the Jews to ask the Egyptians, and they'll give them all the gold and all the silver and all the cloth they could need, which was the currency of an ancient world. It was how they would trade with nomadic tribes for food and for provision. I mean, think about it. They show up 400 years ago as aliens. Joseph's family is saved from famine. This is how Genesis ends. And then a Pharaoh comes to the throne who knows not Joseph. He rejects the favor that God had on Joseph. But God had made a previous promise. Remember what God told Abram? God told Abram way back in the book of Genesis, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So before Joseph is born, before Moses is born, way back in Abraham's day, God says, I'm going to birth a nation under you, and that nation will sojourn in a foreign land, Egypt, They'll end up enslaved for 400 years. But just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 26, I, God is speaking to Abram, will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You are in more officially. We're just a few hundred yards from the Spartanburg city limits. You're in the nation of America. You're in the continent of North America. You are thousands of miles from anywhere this took place. So many of you just stood a few moments ago, and you worshiped a God who is as real to you as the seat you're sitting in because you have experienced his mercy and his grace. And you know where he came from? He was a Jew of a promised people who would come out of Abram and walk through. So they entered as aliens. They served as servants. They ended up suffering as slaves, yet the Bible says they plundered the Egyptians. Now, why use that word? When we use the word plunder, we think about taking. You gave Christmas gifts last month. No one plundered your home. You may feel that way when the grandkids leave. But in reality, you gave those gifts to the people you love. You couldn't give a Christmas gift to everybody you love. But the people who mean a lot to you, you bought them a gift. And the people who really mean a whole lot to you, your children and grandchildren, you overspent. You're paying for it now. You got the credit card statement this week. You're paying for those gifts. But nobody took it from you. You chose to do it. Plunder is an act of war. Yet the Jews hadn't defeated anybody. But God had. He conquered. And when he conquers... He always blesses 
his people. Now look at that simple little list. That's the gospel. You enter this world separated from God in your sin. You can live as a servant, an outsider, but you're going to end up suffering as a slave to your sin. But when he conquers your sin and saves you, he does not make you a nicer servant. He makes you a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, an heir, he gives you his inheritance. He gives you the best thing about heaven. And his name is Christ. And he's all yours. And he delivered Christ through a people he delivered to deliver Christ. He delivered Christ through a people he delivered to deliver Christ. And by the way, this exodus is just a foreshadow of another one where we will be set free from a sin-sick, broken world and we will march into a place called Beulah, Canaan land, and we'll cross the Jordan of eternity and robes will be unfolded and streets will be lined with gold and the sea will be crystal, the gates will be pearly, and you and I will receive all the plunder of a war the Savior won. And, and this is why it's so important to commemorate those promises. And then he documents them. The documentation comes next, and I'll close with the passage close. He says, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men. This is a spiritual and textual rabbit hole. I'll just tell you what we know and what we don't know. Some people argue the number's too big. They say if it's 600,000 men, that'd be about 2 million people. Time you add in older men, because these are men of fighting age. These are men with families, men from maybe 15 years of age until 45 years of age. And then everybody added on. The problem with those numbers is real, yet the problem is not in the inaccuracy of the Bible. It's our limitation of understanding the Word. The word thousand here is a word called elef, E-L-E-P-H, but it can also mean platoon, battalion, cows. It's used in a lot of different ways. English words have that way as well. You use those words, you use words all the time, same word, spelled the same way, but it has different meanings depending on the context of it. So some people argue this is 600 battalions, which, which, which would put the number in the tens of thousands, maybe 100,000, and not 2 million. Here's the point. When we come to places like this where we can dive into the text and try to understand it, we need to remember, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. They rolled in there a family of about 70 and in about 14 to 15 generations, God had multiplied them to a nation so big that Pharaoh of Moses' birth, not this Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Exodus 1 who died, was so afraid of overpopulation of the Jews, he asked the midwives to kill the male children. And this is the powerful promise that God gave and kept. He delivered them as a family starving to death and delivered them as a nation heading for a promised land. And then what the Scripture says, beginning in verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes and dough. This is the first fast food of antiquity. You don't have time for the yeast to set up. This is what I'm banning from my life. Every time I see the Chick-fil-A sign or the Bojangles sign, I just have to pray. Just keep driving. 
There's nothing in there for me except a salad, and I refuse to eat a salad while you scarf down a biscuit because salads are going to go to hell, but biscuits are going to make heaven. <laughs> and so I just keep driving. And he says, you can put that on Twitter if you want to. He says, he says here in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. I thought it was 400. Is it 430? Is it 400? It's actually both, about 30 years of freedom. And then once one generation passed, 400 years of slavery. And then the Bible says this, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of the land of Israel. After the documentation, we'll close with the commemoration of God's promise. So it happens. Moses documents it. This is the amount of people. This is the amount of years. This is where we went. And then he commemorates it. Now, this is important, and I'm done. Just stay with me. I'm almost done. Listen. When Moses wrote this for your Bible, it had already happened. Moses didn't write it as it happened. He wrote it after it happened. Moses authored the first five books of your Bible. That's called the Pentateuch. Our Jewish neighbors call it the Torah. First five books of the Bible. Now, Moses wrote it to a generation that didn't live it. So remember, they wandered for 40 years. Well, who had to die before they get into the promised land? We're going to learn this in a few weeks. The generation that experienced the exodus, but then would later question God's promise keeping. So Moses wrote this down to pass on the Passover. The Passover is the ceremony where we commemorate the shed blood of the Passover lamb. But as a part of the Passover, there's a watch night where a member of the family would set up all night and keep watch. Why? To commemorate the night symbolically where God watched over the people of Israel as Egypt experienced death, and he delivered them through the exodus. My default is to focus on what I need God to do. That's not a sin. There are things in my life I need the Lord to do. But it's a good thing to reflect on the promises he's already kept. There's a need our church has. It's not urgent or controversial or anything, but it's, there's a person we've been looking for to add to our team to fill a very important position. I actually... So heavy burdened about this, I've set my alarm to golf every day at 1.24 p.m. The 1.24 matches a verse in a book of the Bible, and it just reminds me of that. Every day I pray for God to send this man to fill this position we've been looking for over a year. I need God to send that man. We've exhausted every means I know. We've used every outside person I know. We, we need God to raise up that man. But if I'm not careful like you, I will be so consumed with what I need God to do, I will not stop to commemorate, document, and celebrate all the promises he's kept. And guess where they all live? You know what Paul says? I love this. Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. I pray in Jesus' name because everything God ever promised was fulfilled 
in him. Why do you think he's delivering a group of Hebrews to the promised land? Because there's going to be a remnant. And in that remnant's going to be a faithful little girl named Mary and a righteous man named Joseph. And they're going to trust God in the midst of an unbelievable miracle of an unplanned pregnancy that occurred in a womb that is virgin. And out of her life will come his, and he will save his people from his sin. He is the greatest promise God ever made and kept to you. So I told you I was going to do it, now I'm going to do it. This week, reflect on the promises God has already kept in your life. And when you do, use that time of encouragement to reinforce your faith in trusting what you've not yet seen him do but you're believing he will